Turn to Romans chapter 2, if you will. I want to follow along. Romans chapter 2. I tell you, it's so hard. Um, I love all kinds of music. It's so hard to do a lot of new songs when you got the kind of songs we just did this morning. You could study the theology in those for a lifetime. They're deep and profound. And um, some good stuff there. We're gonna we're gonna sing the chorus to that last song again after the uh, supper, but not as high as we did a while ago. So <laughs> we'll do the best we can. Uh, since I have to lead it. All right, Romans chapter two. Today we are going to look at verses eleven through sixteen. We went one through eleven last week. And so, beginning of verse 11 again, For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires... They are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Father, we ask your blessings on the preaching and teaching of your word that you would give us some understanding and clarity, and Lord, that you would um, teach us more about who you are, your will for our lives, which is revealed to us in the Word of God, and um, just give us strength and courage to live out the life that you've called us to, and uh, to testify when we have opportunities to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name, amen. Well, this section really belongs in the context of all of chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 16. I just didn't feel like I could fit all that in last week. But it's still in this context, uh, beginning of verse 1, the context of judgment and the wrath of God. Fun subject, right? Judgment and wrath. And I know we don't talk about that much anymore. You know, churches, unfortunately, we have went to both extremes. We either have those who preach hell, fire, and brimstone, and judgment, and get saved every week, or we have those on the opposite end that never mention it and just talk about love and grace and um, so forth. Somewhere we need to be uh, in the middle of that for sure. And uh, it's one of the fun things and one of the good things about teaching expositionally. I don't get to skip over it. Well, if I did, I hope somebody would say, why don't you skip all that? You know, you talked about this over here and skipped all this wrath and judgment. But if you remember, and I'll keep coming back to this often, the thesis of the entire letter to the Romans, really of all of Paul's ministry, is found back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where he talks or explains the gospel of God, the gospel of his son, he calls it both, which is the power, he says, of God unto salvation for all who believe, the Jew first and also the Greek. 
And in it, he says, the righteousness in the gospel, the righteousness of God, the justice of God, the justness of God is revealed. Now, we talked about the fact that this is the righteousness of God toward man. The gospel does, but not really. The intention of the gospel is not to reveal to us that God is righteous. We know he's righteous. All through the the scriptures, we know that he is just and righteous. But the gospel has revealed how God gives righteousness to men. And it is from faith to faith, or beginning and ending with faith. And he says in verse 17, And the just or the righteous one shall live by faith, or literally, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. See, there is no life in living life, really, until you've been born again and bought unto Jesus. And that's kind of what the rest of chapter 1 describes. That the reason God has to give righteousness, and the reason he gives it by faith, and the reason this is necessary is because of the depth of the unrighteousness of men. Right? 18 through the end of chapter 1, I think 32 maybe. He describes men and women and children, humans, in their unrighteous state, in the depth of that unrighteousness. Every sort of man and child and woman since Adam is totally and completely unable to trust God or receive from him the righteousness needed to repair his guilt. I hope you saw that in the songs. I, I listened to them practice Wednesday night, but I didn't think about how, uh, I guess, apropos that would be to what I'm saying today. That idea of Christ in atonement, even our, even our catechism. What is atonement? Is Christ dying in the place of his people. And so we had that demonstrated for us perfectly in chapter 1 because Paul says God has revealed to us the good news that he has made righteousness possible or available, given it to men, all sorts of men, any kind of men, any kind of human. And that's the good news. But unfortunately, along with the righteousness of God or how he makes men righteous, also in the gospel is revealed to us the wrath of God, he says. It too has been revealed against all unrighteousness. So we have the good news of Jesus Christ and how he has paid for men to be purchased unto God the Father. But the gospel also demonstrates the reason that needed to happen. Exposes that all men and women are under the wrath and judgment of God. The gospel always does one of two things, right? When we preach the gospel, it either brings men to faith in Christ or more faith in Christ, or it reveals men's unrighteousness and the judgment that is coming upon them, and it further condemns them. And we'll talk about that some more later. So all of chapter 1 after verse 17 demonstrates the wrath and judgment of God that is coming. In one way it's already been revealed and it is a promise that one day judgment is coming. In fact, in one place the Bible says since Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a sign that he is going to one day judge the world. And it will be Jesus who is the judge. The Father has appointed the Son as judge. 
And that's why the gospel of grace is necessary. And so then we get to chapter 2, and last week we looked at just more of men's sin. We saw in chapter 1, um, denying the truth. I mean, men will go so far as to not, and this is still true, not worship the God of creation, but instead worship what God has created. And that's what Paul says there in 1. How foolish. You won't worship the one who made it, but you'll worship what he's made. And then we saw all the other sin, the sexual sin, the lists of sin. It's not exhaustive, certainly, of sin, but much of our sin will fall in the categories listed there. And then he gets to chapter 2 and says, even uh, a sin that we all hate, hypocrisy. One of the great marks of depravity is hypocrisy. Condemning others for the same sin that we commit. You know, how much we all hate that. Well, how do you call me out on it? You're doing the same thing. And, of course, you should be called out on it. But we all need to be called out on it, whatever it is. And so we get to chapter 2, verse 3, and you see that he lays out the judgment of God. And then in verse 5, he says, I'm talking about God's wrath and judgment. And then again in verse 8, God's wrath. So I'm sort of overemphasizing this to make sure you understand this passage is definitely in the context of God's judgment and wrath in response to man's condition of unrighteousness, okay? So I think I've established that. Man has fallen in Adam. He is our head. He represents all the human race. But not only do we have a fallen nature, unlike Adam, we come here. The Bible says conceived in sin, brought forth in sin. We have a sinful nature, but we also willfully choose to sin and disobey God. And that was chapter 1 again. And now into chapter 2, we even deny God exists, though it is evident in nature. Everything God has made is shown that he is real and that he should be worshipped. But men do not choose to do that apart from the gospel of grace. But I also want you to notice in verse 6, this judgment and this wrath that is to come is fair. You know, a lot of times that's what people will say if you talk about the wrath and judgment of God. Well, that don't sound fair. But Paul is demonstrating here, he's probably answering that question. He does that a lot. It's a very fair judgment. In verse 6 it says, God will render to each one according to his works. He's going to be fair to everybody. You get judged according to what you do and what you do not do. And then in verse 11, for God shows no partiality. And so notice now how his judgment is impartial and how it is fair. Beginning in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Do you see the impartiality? Those who have never had the law, never heard it, will not be judged by the law because they didn't have it. Right? They'll still perish, but they won't be judged by it. Those who have been given the law and have it, they will be judged by it. And I will make an argument that they'll even be judged more harshly. I think there's scriptural proof for that. In fact, the further we go into this chapter, I think that's the point Paul is making. You've been given the law, you, you people of God, Israelites. You, know, you not only have it written in the sky... And there's not only some evidence written on your heart, but you have it. 
You had the angels, the prophets, the preachers. And yet you deny it. That's going to be a greater judgment. Just like in uh, James we read, those who God puts in the authority, uh, in the position of teaching. What does it say? Everyone shouldn't desire to be a teacher. Why? Your judgment will be greater. Now, I don't, I don't know how to explain all that, but I think that's what Scripture is clearly teaching. There are degrees of judgment, and God is fair in His judgment. He's not going to judge somebody based on something they didn't know or didn't have. And so he says that here. And I think it's right to say this. Those who have never heard the gospel will not be judged because they haven't heard the gospel. As if they did hear the gospel. In other words, they won't be charged as if, why did you not do this? Now God's still going to impose judgment. It doesn't mean, though, and back to the context here, the context here is not about how to be saved or how God is going to save people. The context is how God's going to judge, right? And what people do with this text is they'll take it and they'll say, look here, God's going to judge people based on the life they have, not on what they don't have. So some people will be saved even without hearing the gospel. That's not what this says. And please don't hear that that's what I'm saying because I'm not saying that. But I do believe it's correct. And I, I read some people much smarter than me just to make sure I wasn't off base here, historically speaking, that God's not going to judge people by the gospel when they haven't heard the gospel. But just like God is going to judge more harshly the Jews for having the law and not obeying it, I think there will be a harsher judgment for those of us who hear the gospel and don't obey it. And back earlier, he said, those of you who are living the way you're living, you're just storing up wrath for yourselves. I think the more you hear the gospel and refuse it, the more you store up wrath and the more condemnation you heap up. But this is talking about judgment, not salvation. So you can't go and then make this doctrine that says, oh, well, all those people in countries and foreign lands and uh, distant places and jungles that never heard the gospel, they'll be fine because, you know, after all, God's fair and just. He would never judge them by something they don't have. No, but he will judge by what they do have. And again, we've already read in chapter 1, the heavens declare and nature tells that there's a God, but they deny that. Right? And now, beginning of verse 13, if you have a King James Bible, you'll see this. It's set off in parentheses, 13 through 15. And I've discovered that that is proper, and it should be that way everywhere. And if you think about this, you can see it. I, I started to stop when I was reading it, but I'll do it now. If you read verse 15, uh, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when according to my God, it doesn't really make a lot of sense going straight into that. But if you read verse 12, what I just read, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Verse 16, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That's the complete thought. He stops, as Paul often does, in verse 13, and he has this little parenthetical 
I want to explain what I'm saying in verse 12 a little bit more, okay? So it goes a little bit deeper there and, and further demonstrates that it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For the Gentiles who did not have a law by nature do what the law requires. They are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. So he's making this point. God is fairly going to judge, but it's not like people don't know right from wrong. They do. And then he makes this statement, much like he's made earlier, that whoever does the law and not just hears it, he will be righteous before God because God justifies the doers of the law. Now, we looked at this prior up in earlier verses when we said um, that God would justify those who obey the truth. And here's the problem. Nobody obeys the truth, and certainly not perfectly. In the problem here in verse 13, there are no doers of the law. Because if you're going to be a doer of the law, according to the scripture, you've got to do every single bit of the law. You can't, remember what James said, if you, if you mess up in one little spot of the law, you break one law, you've broken the entire law. Because you become a lawbreaker, right? And because of that, you can't just fix the gap that's been made. You can't just undo your lawlessness. But the truth is, Nobody's keeping the law all the way. I mean, that, you see this in the New Testament when Jesus is confronted by a couple of times, people, what do I have to do to enter heaven? And, they, and he takes them straight to the law. We'll keep the law. And of course, one, one young man thought he had. But then Jesus demonstrated, but there's one part of the law at least I can demonstrate for you, Jesus said, that you haven't kept. Sell everything you have and go take up your cross and follow me. And he realized that if nothing else, he hadn't loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, and strength. He had loved something else in his place. Because God was standing right before him saying, Get, just lay everything down and follow me. And he refused to do it. The point being, there are no law keepers. Okay? So again, unfortunately, people have taken Romans chapter 2 and said, Hey, look here. Proof of my doctrine that people can save themselves. You can do enough. Just be a law keeper. God's going to judge you by whether you keep the law or not. And as I said last week, that's not good news. And he says that for the Gentiles who don't even have the law by nature, do what the law requires. That becomes the law also to them because even though they do not have the law, verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now, I kind of illustrated this last week by saying, pointing out there are many cultures in this, on this earth who've never had a testimony of the gospel or the law of God, but they still know right from wrong. They punish thieves. They punish murderers. They punish a lot of stuff. Why? Because of this verse. Now, I do want you to notice, and I've made this mistake before, it's a minor mistake, but mistake nonetheless. It doesn't say the law is written on their hearts. What does it say? The work of the law is written on their hearts. I think this is different than what was written on Adam's heart. Since Adam and the fall, it's been different. Except for the new covenant, right? 
Jeremiah chapter 31, what does God say I will do in the new covenant? I will take my law and write it on their hearts, right? Not the works of the law, but the law. So that now we as God's children can obey what he calls us to obey because he's written the law in our hearts. It's a little minor difference. You can read our confession and you kind of see in the chapter on the law, they point out that I think that what was written on Adam's heart was different than what's been written um, than this idea of the work of the law written on the hearts of all of humanity since the fall. But at redemption, God writes the law in our hearts. I don't know what uh, good it is to know that, but I pass it on to you anyways. You can look into it, see what you think. But this judgment, he says, is impartial because God's going to judge people according to what they have, not what they don't have. So you can't charge God with being unjust or unfair. But there is a day of judgment coming. The gospel has revealed that. In fact, back in chapter 1 again, God's wrath has been revealed against all unrighteousness. And one day he will judge that. And then that wrath will be poured out. And he will judge even the secrets of men. Even the secrets of men, verse 16 said. That's a frightening thought. In other words, there is a completeness to judgment. When judgment comes, there's not going to be anything that squeaks by. There's a day coming. And our Lord Jesus, when he was here, spoke of it often. In fact, Matthew 12 and 36, Jesus says something similar to this. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Even the secret things. Peter said... The Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. The apostles heard it from Jesus and they taught it. Another time Peter said, but at the same time, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. There is a day coming, a day of judgment, and it is impartial. And Paul says, remember in 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So the good news is judgment is impartial. But the bad news is judgment is impartial. In other words, you will not be judged by that bad cousin or uncle or whoever it is that's ruined your family name and done all these bad things and everybody knows about it, thankfully God will not pull up that person and judge you based on them. But on the same turn, he's also not going to bring up your sweet precious grandma who sang in the choir every Sunday and gave faithfully to God and went on mission trips and did all the things that need to be done. You won't be judged by her works either. The judgment will be impartial. And it will be fair.
then finally, Paul refers to the fact that this judgment will happen according to my gospel. And the only reason he says this in this way is to be sure that no other gospel is mistaken for the one he's been preaching, the one he received from Christ. Again, I point out these errors when I know about them so you'll, you'll know if you stumble across it. A lot of people have taken this and said, see, Paul had his gospel. I have my gospel. You can have a gospel. We can all have a gospel. But obviously, that's not what Paul is saying. He has clearly defined the gospel of God as the gospel of Jesus Christ. He described it in Romans 1. He describes it even more clearly in Romans 1 and 15. I mean, in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which I received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the Scriptures. That's the gospel he's talking about when he says, my gospel. And if you read Galatians 2, Paul, given his testimony not long after he was saved and directly received revelation from Jesus himself about the gospel, he took Barnabas and Titus up to Jerusalem and met with presumably much like the, something like the Jerusalem council, the apostles and the elders of the church to sit and learn and make sure that what he was teaching about the gospel was correct. So this my gospel that Paul taught was the gospel of Jesus Christ that he passed on to the apostles, and Paul being one of them, he rightly says, everyone will be judged, even the secrets of men, according to my gospel. So judgment is coming, and no one will escape. But, I want to point this out to you, if I can find it here, First John, chapter 4. It's very important. Because I don't understand everything about the judgment seat of Christ. All this idea of uh, giving rewards and withholding rewards. And then we'll be given things to cast at Christ's feet as believers. All that's pretty difficult at times to interpret. But we can't say, we can't deny all the scriptures that says everyone will stand before God in judgment. But listen to this, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 19. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not know God, because, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the payment to the Father for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, and if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that, believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is also, we are, as he is, we are also in this world. 
There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not, has not been perfected in love. Here's the good news, church, believers. Whatever it means that we'll stand in judgment, we will. And it ought to not cause us to be afraid that we will perish away with the rest of the world. This is clear. God has given us the love and the Spirit of God, the love of God by the Spirit of God within us to give us confidence at judgment. So no matter what's going to happen there, one thing that's not going to happen is He's not going to cast us away. And whatever these rewards are, we're not going to lose anything that God has promised us through Jesus. And as Romans says in chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ. One thing you will not face in the judgment, believer, is condemnation. So even though the judgment is fair and right, those of us who believe, we will be judged according to what we did in the law. But here's the good news. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. We aren't judged according to whether... Uh, we're not given righteousness according to whether we kept the law. We're given righteousness because Christ kept the law. And there's our hope. And there's how perfect love casts out fear. I fear judgment and wrath for those who do not claim Christ as Savior and King. Those who have not put their faith and trust in Him. We preach the gospel in hopes that they will be redeemed from that. Because if not, the only option you have is to be judged whether you kept the law or not. Whether you were good at well-doing, it said earlier. <clears throat> you don't want to come before Almighty God with that as the only option. But however it will look, and however it will take place, when those of us who have been saved, and we have put our faith in Christ, and we claim not our own righteousness but His, we will be judged according to the works of Christ, which he has made perfect. And some will get rewards, some won't, but they'll all be cast at Jesus' feet where they belong. But we don't have to fear judgment. But those who have not trusted Christ, you should fear judgment. It's a serious thing. This is a wrathful God. Did you hear what Peter said? All of those who are not righteous will face condemnation. They'll be utterly destroyed. Away from the presence of the joy of the Lord. Not annihilated. But suffer eternal punishment. That's a fearful thing. So what do you do? Trust Christ. Do you hear the good news of this gospel? That you can never undo what's been done. But that God has undone what has been done in Christ. And your hope is in Him. If you believe that, then the Bible would say, repent and be baptized. And follow him. And do the things we sang about. Did you hear those things? The spirit that's in us. He's given us the spirit. And we just read these things. About the spirit that's in us. He has written the law on our hearts. We can obey it now. now we don't do it very well. Sometimes not very often. And that's when we repent again. And we seek God and we seek Christ. And we trust Him more. 
Father, we're so thankful for your word. And Lord, I certainly don't um, even enjoy preaching about judgment and wrath. It's not fun. But it is truth. And as you've said later in this book, how can they hear without a preacher? We have to preach what you've told us to preach. I'm not going to lie to people and tell them everything's going to be okay. Just be a nice person and come to church some and donate some money some. And just do good things. Those are the very things by which you'll be judged, and they're not gonna they're gonna come up very short. <clears throat> Rather, put all your hope and all your faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that will last. Beginning with faith, ending with faith. The just, those who by faith are just shall live. So God, for us who have been saved, give us more faith. For those who have never trusted you, or they have trusted you and just have never made a step of obedience to do what you've called them to do, to be baptized and to follow you and seek repentance and more faith, I pray you give them the courage and strength to do that. You continue to bless and grow your church and the kingdom of God around the preaching of the gospel. That's what you promised to do, so we trust you for that. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.